Good morning. I was thinking that table looks really low. It's because it's not on. But <laughs> thanks, Ian. Uh, let me just add my welcome to the one that you've already received from Ian, and thank you very much to Ian and to Naomi for uh, leading us through the service uh, this far. Uh, so this is the third week of our series called Revealed, uh, and so I can't remember who has spoken here. I think Dan has spoken and Harley has spoken. There's a little bit of a chop and change in this. We're both speaking at Hillview and Kintour, uh, and so thank you very much to Isa for reading for us this morning. So 15 years ago, uh, myself and Rachel got engaged. Uh, so it was approximately 10 minutes past midnight on Christmas Day of 2006 uh, after myself and Rachel, uh, Rachel's folks, uh, my folks, and Lindsay and Colin, we had attended the watch night service at Kingswell's Parish Church. So when Rachel and I first met about a year and a half before that, we didn't realize that our parents knew each other and had been sending Christmas cards to each other for about 20 years. Um, and so we only managed to make the connection after we'd had a couple of dates, and then we had spoken to our, our folks about, you know, we'd had these dates, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we know them. And we're just like, oh, that's a little strange, but never mind. Um, I remember when uh, Rach and I, we first started speaking uh, about the possibility of, of getting engaged and getting married. And you get to that point of where you're like, okay, I probably need to speak to my parents about this. But how do you actually start that conversation with your parents of, I think I found the one that I want to marry. And uh, I remember it was one Sunday evening, uh, we'd had the youth group here, and so I was volunteering at that, and then I went home. I was like, right, okay, this evening I need to speak to my folks about this. But I struggled to figure out how to start the conversation. Let's put it this way, that's the first and only time I've watched an entire episode of Midsummer Murders. And by the time it got to the end of it, my folks knew something was up. And they were just like, okay, spit it out. What do you want to, what do you want to talk to us about? So uh, anyways, I managed to speak to them and they were very encouraging. So it was at Kingswell's Paris Church that it seemed a good place, a place where Rich and I probably had actually played in the crash together, we just hadn't realized. Uh, so on that Christmas day of 2006, I popped the question, uh, and I, I vividly remember throughout that service, constantly just tapping my pocket, just like making sure the ring was there, as if it was going to leap out of my pocket and run around the room and make me search for it. But I remember tapping that, getting quite nervous and looking at the clock, and just wanting that time to kind of like, well, let's get to midnight, let's get to midnight, and... I will confess, I'm not too sure I remember anything from that service. I was just going through like, the words in my head that I, was, uh, that I was going to say. And the service did finish. And then as everyone was wishing each other a happy Christmas, uh, and I think there was like soup and stuff in the back, uh, myself and Rachel, we went out to the front of the church and outside down on one knee, I popped the question and thankfully she said yes. Uh, of course, back then, there wasn't the luxuries of WhatsApp or there wasn't the horrors of social media. Just giving you my personal view on social media straight away there. Um, so, but they're quite useful for announcing those things. But back in 2006, you didn't have those tools readily available to announce these things. Uh, and so, of course, after we had a quick celebration at Rachel's parents' house, uh, we sent out a text message. And so this was the text message where you had about 120 characters to try and say something, and you probably only had about two free messages that you could send a month. So this was a, a, a message that was very well composed on a Motorola Razor, probably with a, who had the Motorola Razor, by the way? That was a cool phone, let's just be honest. In fact, uh, Rachel and I, we went to the Scottish, what was the name of the museum? 
there was a museum in Edinburgh we took the kids to anyway, and it had these, all these old mobile phones, and the kids were like, what are those? And Rich like, yeah, we had half of those. It was, it was a bit of a moment. So anyways, we sent out a message to everyone just uh, sharing the, the exciting news. And so our story, to be honest, has been pretty straightforward. So in August of 2008, uh, we were married, but we were just standing there where Andy Hayes there married us. Uh, we then moved into our flat in West Hill when we came back from our honeymoon in Italy. Uh, Rachel then completed her studies in law, and I continued working at an investment firm. And five years later, Zoe came along, and two years later, Rory came along. And I guess within that time, there's probably not been a huge number of surprises along the way. But that is a huge contrast, our story, to the story that we read this morning, to the one in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 1. The plans that Mary and Joseph had made, the way that they thought that their early years of marriage were going to pan out, they were turned completely upside down by the message from Gabriel that she would give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. So this morning, I'd like us to look at who is revealed to us in this passage, and because of who he is, we can live a life completely surrendered to him. So as we've read in the text, we find Mary, and it says that she is betrothed to Joseph. So in the culture of the day, you had, so here, I guess you've got engaged and married there. You had engaged, betrothed, and, and married. So betrothed was a time where you had made some commitments to each other, but you weren't legally married. So some of you, certainly in the ESV, if you look at the bottom of your Bible, I'll have a little note that'll explain a bit about who, what betrothed meant. So Gabriel appears before Mary and shares a message that turns her world upside down in an instant. Mary is pregnant. This message was seismic for the world and for Mary. It was completely life-changing, and it must have been hard for Mary to comprehend all that has been said. As she looks to digest this message, a number of things could easily have been going through her mind, such as, how is this practically possible? That must have gone through her. She asked the question, how? But she must say, how? The virgin birth is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. And it is an awesome demonstration of God's power. His power to create life is something that we wonder at in creation every single day. And again, we should be led to awe and wonder as we face the question that in our humanity, we just can't answer. But it should lead us to simply gaze at God's supernatural power. Some of the things that might have been going through Mary's mind, what would Joseph say about this? Would he still want to be betrothed? Would he want to be married to her? What would our family say about this? Would they want to cast her out? Would they just be full of shame and embarrassment? What are they going to say? And what, what would the community say about this? Would she always be known as the mother of the illegitimate child? There'd be constant questions over who was the father. Was it Joseph? Was it someone else? And what does it exactly mean to give birth to the son of the most high? What does that mean for his childhood? What does it mean for what he'll do when he grows up? There's so many questions that could easily have been going through her mind. And she could easily have been gripped by uncertainty and fear. 
She could easily have looked just to run out the door as far from the messenger as possible and looked to live in denial. For a girl who was likely no more than 15 years old, seemingly from humble estate, closer to the bottom rung of the social ladder than the top, the thought of even sinking even further in society's eyes could easily have been one that weighed very heavily upon her. But that's not what we see. As Gabriel appeared, she's described as troubled. But there's something that comes after that as well. It says, but at the same time, she's described as trying to discern the greeting. So it's not, she's, just, she's not just troubled. She's not just trying, to, she's just not full of fear. I think if you look at like the original language, it speaks almost of like trying to do an audit. She's trying to discern the words that are being said. She's wondering. She's pondering. She didn't dismiss. And it wasn't outright fear that we read about. And she goes on then to ask, how will this be since I am a virgin? I think we can often uh, impute tone as we read passages. But in this one, I don't get any sense of disregard or unbelief. But I get the idea this is someone who is seeking. Tim Keller says, some doubts seek answers. And some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. Keller describes her question as one of measured incredulity. Mary sought an answer as to how this miracle would come to pass, not could it come to pass. As Gabriel explains how and then shares the news of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we see the surrender from Mary. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. One of the reasons I wanted us to read on from this passage was because I think we get a glimpse of like some stages of surrender. So in verse 38 there, I don't think Mary is saying, ah, I get it all now. I don't think she's saying, I absolutely love this and I'm super excited to be a part of it. But her words are ones of simple obedience, following God and surrendering to his will. When we're convicted of what God has called us to do, we need to submit, we need to trust, and we need to embrace despite our fears and our reservations. As we read on, we see the joy of Elizabeth and the Holy Spirit inspired confirmation that she provides. And I think we see the surrender evolving. And Mary goes on to sing, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then in the next verse, she goes on to describe herself as blessed. There is now that excitement, that foolhearted elation of how God was at work in her life. And how she had been chosen to play a significant role in the great rescue story. God may ask large things of us, and only he has the authority to do that. Only he has the authority to ask of us to consider a sacrificial way of living, to maybe move to another country that you've never been to, to lay down an opinion that you hold, to follow him into an unknown journey ahead, 
to live your life in a way that is completely countercultural and may even upset some in society. To live your life potentially as an outcast in society. I don't have the authority to ask that of anyone here. Neither does Martin, neither does the elders, but the God of heaven and earth does. He has the authority and he asks us to surrender all that we are for his glory. For Mary to be able to surrender her entire life at that moment to the will of God, I think is truly incredible. When you think of where she, five minutes before of where she thought the trajectory of her life was going to where it was going now, it was completely different. And I think it leads us to ask the question of how? How did she get from going from here to being over here and submitting completely to the will of God? And it is because of who was revealed to her. Within our passage, Jesus is revealed to us and it's because of who he is that Mary was able to surrender and also we are able to surrender our lives. So we're going to read verses 31 to 35 again and we'll go through a few of the things that, uh, that are revealed to us. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and we be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. So there's a few things in that passage that I want us to look at. And the first of them is that he is described to us in verse 32 as being great. And not just great, but as very great. Jesus is the greatest. Charles Spurgeon says this of Jesus. No one has influenced history more than Jesus Christ. Is it not proven that he is great? Conquerors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and he is the greatest of them. Liberators are great, and he is the greatest of them. Saviors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Jesus is great in every single aspect of his character. He is not average in any way. He is great. He is perfect. He is awesome. So that's the first thing that is revealed to us. Secondly, Gabriel then reveals that he is the son of the Most High. So Most High is something, a name that's given to God, and you can read that in Genesis 14. So to identify Jesus as the son of the most high is to declare that he has the same essence as the most high God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for, for, of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Jesus himself states, he who has seen me has seen the Father, and I and the Father are one. You can read that in John 14 and John 10. Gabriel announced, and the New Testament confirms, that Jesus unquestionably was and is worthy of his divine title because he truly is the Son of God. So we've seen that Jesus is great. He is the greatest. We've seen that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Most High. And then we're reminded that he is a king and his reign will never end. King David and his successors had their years of reigning numbered. Some of these were quite long. And as you're going through some of those passages in Scripture, you might think some of them are too long. But none of them were forever. And that trend has continued to this day. 2,000 years since this revelation that we've seen, kings have come and gone. We've seen kingdoms rise and fall. Nations have been formed and they've disappeared. Walls have been built and they've crumbled. Nations have conquered and been conquered. And through all of that, Christ's kingdom has continued. His kingship has never been threatened. Our king is sat on his throne and no wars, no darkness, no evil can ever change that fact. Our king is sat on his throne in victory. It can be so easy to live in fear. To live in the fear of of the what if. Anxiety can grow and worry can sometimes very easily encompass our thoughts and impact every part of our lives. But no political turnings, no whims and attitudes of society will ever change the fact that Jesus will reign on his throne forevermore. And we should take great confidence in that. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Revelation chapter 4 describes this throne to us. And we have a scene there that displays the power of God. And it's reminiscent of what we read. I think it's in Exodus 19 and 20 of Mount Sinai. And see, when God comes down on that mountain, there's this huge earthquake. The place is shaking. You see the power of God. When we see the throne described in Revelation 4, we see that power. But simultaneously in there, The peace of his throne is described to us as well. We serve an unshakable, victorious king who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he will always reign on his throne. He is the greatest. He is the son of God. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. We're then told that he will be called holy. He is distinct. He's different. He is set apart. He is perfect in every way. And in his perfection, he could be the Lamb of God that took upon himself the sins of the world. Jesus was blemish free, never sinned. Jesus went to the cross for us and took the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sinfulness, because we have turned from God. Because we have been selfish. And he took upon the sins of the world and defeated sin. 
He defeated death. And because of that, we are washed clean. We are seen as righteous through the eyes of God. He is holy. He is the greatest. He is the son of the most high. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And he is holy. He is our savior. Before any of these names and descriptions are given, Gabriel announces that Mary and Joseph should give him the name Jesus. Jesus. What does that name mean to you? What that name means to you will reveal how you surrender. If this name means nothing to you or very little to you, then the act of surrendering your will will almost seem mad to you. Why? It'll feel pointless. It'll feel difficult. It'll feel confusing and it will be a constant battle in your life, a battle of his will and your will. But if that name is the greatest you know, if that name is the name of your God, the name of your king who reigns supremely, the name of the one who's the savior of your soul, then it's different. If the name of Jesus is one that refreshes your soul, if it brings peace in the darkness, if the name of Jesus brings life to your heart, joy to your soul, if that's the name that brings tears to your eyes as you consider his amazing, abundant love for you, if that's the name that calms the storms in your life, the name that you wholly trust in for your salvation, then surrender is not pointless, but rather is like finding treasure in a field. You give up everything. You surrender all that you have to obtain that treasure. How you view surrendering your life to Christ is not a view about yourself. It's a view about Jesus. The world we live in puts extreme value on self and stuff. Therefore, this life of sacrifice and surrender, it can feel difficult. The question we're often asked is, what are you prepared to give up? But I think that question is just again focused on us. It used to be, there was a song that was released about 15 years ago. Um, I actually really loved the song, but the more I've thought about it, there's one line I'm not so sure about in it, uh, and it's a Ren Collective one, and it says, I'm counting up the cost and you're worth it. But again, I think if we're counting up the cost, we're looking to compare Jesus to other things in this world. And Jesus is incomparable. There is no one like him. Let's not let the question be focused on us. A question of what you prepare to give up is focused on what my wants are. It's focused on my desires. It's focused on the limits that I have. It's focused on what society says I should have and what I should do. Rather, the question that needs answering is who is Jesus? And I wonder if we can just pause for a moment and if you can just bow your heads and just answer that question for yourself. Who is Jesus to you?
continue to ponder that question throughout the day. How you answer that question will reveal how you surrender to him. The second question is, can you afford not to surrender yourself wholly to him? John Piper says, there is truth and there is a lie. There is deception and there is liberation. The lie, the deception is that if you give yourself up wholly to God, for him to do whatever he pleases to make you holy, God-glorifying and fruitful, then you will be joyless and miserable. That's the lie. That's the number one lie of the universe. And the truth is that if you give yourself up wholly to God for him to do whatever he pleases to make you holy and God-glorifying and fruitful, he will give you an eternal treasure. Jesus Christ and all that God is for you in him. A treasure more enjoyable than anything in this world. And he will give you a heart that experiences this treasure as gain, not loss even if it costs your life. Scripture is clear in how we should live our life. Paul in his letter to the church in Rome says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. You read that in Romans 12 verse 1. And Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 16, of, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Who is Jesus? Can you afford not to wholeheartedly surrender to him? Desire the greatest treasure. Don't settle, but give of yourself completely. As our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, we loosen our grips on our own desires and we take steps to experiencing the joy of embracing God's will for us. As it was with Mary, that may start as simple obedience, stating, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. And from there, as we submit to him, it can grow and it can blossom into that whole sense of excitement. A living completely surrendered to him, magnifying him, and rejoicing in the midst of life events that might turn your world upside down. It may change your dreams, but you're resting in what God knows is best for you. A.W. Tozer, he wrote a devotional on surrender, and at the end of it he says, give yourself, sorry, give yourself as a living sacrifice. That means living day by day on the altar. Sacrificial animals were killed, then offered. No getting off the altar. Are we living on the altar or off of it. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And my plea for you is not to wait any longer. Come and see who Jesus is. Come and see who he has been revealed to us by God's word. 
Come and give your life to the king who will reign forever on the only throne that matters. If you've never given your life to Christ, don't wait. Come and enjoy that perfect treasure, that goodness that he has for us. Be welcomed into the kingdom that will never end, of our king that is good all the time. And maybe you're sitting here today and know that there are areas of your life that you've not surrendered to Christ. Maybe there are fears, anxieties that you're struggling to let go of. Maybe there are opinions that need to be surrendered. And just on that point, I've said it a couple of times, and I do find at the moment, I don't know, maybe you disagree with me on this, but over the last 18 months, two years, I feel that we hold on to our opinions so much stronger than we used to. There's a guy, Andrew Wilson, and he speaks of there are things written in pencil, there are things written in ink, and things that are written in blood. The things that are written in blood, we do not compromise on at all. This is the truth of the gospel, and we stand firm in that at all times. The things that are written in pen, we have good discussions about. We open up God's word together, and we learn together what God's will is. And things in pencil, we sometimes need to let go of. But I think so often I see at the moment the things that are in pencil are held as things are held in blood. And I think we need to strive for unity. And sometimes we need to surrender something that, yes, we may feel quite strongly about, but let's not put it above other things that are so much more important. Of loving one another. Of displaying the glory of Christ to this world. Of being completely surrendered to his will, not our will. Maybe there are other things that we need to surrender. Maybe there are activities that we do. Maybe there is time. I, I don't know, but please do take time to pray about these things. Pray into how are you living your life and ensure that you are living on that altar, not jumping on and off or just placing some things on the altar. But let's lay our whole life on the altar. Surrender completely to God. Friends, live your life constantly as a sacrifice to the Lord. Surrendering all you have, not because I say so. But do so in response to who has been revealed to us. Live your life completely surrendered to Jesus. To the Son of God. To the greatest to the savior of the world, to the savior of your soul, the only one who can save your soul, to the one who loves you in every moment of every day, to the one who also says to each of us, you are favored. The one who gave his life for you and reigns sovereignly over all things today and forevermore. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for how it reveals who you are to us. Thank you that in this passage, Lord, that amongst other things that we've seen, that you are the greatest, that no one comes close to you, that you are the son of the most high. 
that your kingdom will never end, but you will always be sat in victory over sin and death. And that you are holy, and because you're holy, you could be that sacrificial lamb of God for the whole world, and you could defeat sin, you could defeat death. So Lord, as we choose how we live our lives, would we live our life completely surrendered to you, our King? Would we not be selective in the things that we surrender to you? But would we give it all to you? Because you alone are worthy. You are worthy of every word that comes out of our mouth, every single action. God, they are all for you and for your glory. So we pray Father, would your spirit come and help us in this? We are broken people. We realize the selfishness inside of us. We pray that you continue to transform us, God. Come by your spirit today and transform us to become more like Jesus. Less of us than more of you. Please help us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.